0: 1 Peter chapter 2, in case you have not noticed in the last few weeks, there's a new development going in across the street, okay? It's a little controversial with some of the trees being torn out. They were potentially supposed to be trees that were back from, like, uh, one of the planted after one of the world wars as commemorative trees, and they weren't marked, and there's, there's been a whole bunch of, like, little things that have been going on with that. But, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a new development, and that's, it's a neat opportunity for us as we think about it. But when this new development happens, anytime there is a new development, a new house going in, there's a whole lot that goes on with it. There's building plans. There's going to be builders. There's going to be uh, people who are wanting to come into the neighborhood. There's people who may not want to come into the neighborhood. But as we look at this idea of there's a new development, Peter's going to pick up on that. In fact, in this passage, he's going to use a building metaphor often throughout the Throughout the passage. And he's gonna he's gonna help us understand and go through. As we look at it, Peter uses these metaphors to help us understand God's plan and God's purpose for our community. Not our not our community outside of us necessarily right now. We're talking this community of believers. He's gonna help us understand we as a church, we as a body of believers, how are we supposed to function? what is it about us? What is our identity? What is our purpose? And he he doesn't give us the full encompassing, but he's going to give us some interesting perspectives, especially when you remember the audience to which he's talking to. Those who are battling through exile, those who are battling through chaos and and difficulties in their worlds and, and tumultuous times, and they're they're really trying to feel out where they're at and how they fit in in this this new perspective in their life. And so, to keep a Peter's metaphor, as we go through the passage, we're gonna we're gonna as they put in the notes, we're gonna hammer our way through. That's my little construction pun for the night. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna hammer our way through and look at the builder. We're gonna look at the the materials or the the foundation, the base. We're going to look at the blueprints, the builders, the building tenants, all those different things. A bunch of bees fell out really nice for alliteration, so we sort of just kept going with it. But let's start, let's start there in verse number four. Peter looks at, and we, we pick up, and there, it seems like an abrupt transition, but there's, there is some logic as you look back. We're not going to take the time to go back to all of the Psalms. Uh, where he talks about taste and see that the Lord is good. And just before it, it talks like two verses earlier, it talks about to you who are coming. And it seems to be Peter is, it has some train of thought as to why he changes that. But he goes to, he talks about to you who are coming or those who are coming to him, he talks about in this passage. And what he's saying is this, this metaphor that I'm gonna start building on, he says it starts with salvation. To you who came to him. As you've come to this one, and he's gonna, he's gonna declare who this one is. So he says, as you've come to him, what's happened? What has changed? He's been, he's been doing that for a whole chapter already. What, what has happened to us that we've been born again? When we have come to Christ, what changed? And he used all of chapter one to do that. And he continues laying out this theological framework for us in, in chapter two. He says, as you come to him, as to a living stone, now, when we look at this idea of a living stone, he uses a word that's really unique here. He uses the word lithos, which is a stone that has been cut or dressed or hand-hewn for building purposes. I think it's a really interesting point in this passage to make a total side note. But when we talk and we, we understand people believe that Peter is the the rock upon which the church is built, upon which he is the first pope, well, if we're in a passage here where he's going to talk about the building, the church, the establishment. He doesn't use the word "petros." He doesn't use the, the, the word that his name was. He uses a completely different word. So he's not even looking to identify himself. He's going to identify a different stone. He's going to talk about this stone that is living, a stone that has been dressed, that has been cut for a specific purpose, and he's going to use this term uh, a number of times throughout the passage. Now we all understand rocks were the the main building material. Even today, you go to the Middle East, you're not going to find two by fours laying around. Wood was scarce. We have a lot of wood here, although those of you have been doing building projects over the last year or so, you know the wood price have been through the roof. Well, in the Middle East stone was the main building material. And so he's going to use that to help us understand this building project. And so as he talks about it, the stone is a symbol of strength. That's why they built with it. There was a solidarity to it. It was strong. It was unified. It was, it was together. And so as the stones would be placed together in a building, it brought a cohesion to that building. It brought a, a solidness to the building. And there was strength in that building. And, and we know that this rock is Christ. We can go through and take the time to go through. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, the, the rock that was in the wilderness. He says, This rock is Christ. We're going to go in a few moments to Matthew chapter 21. We'll see that the cornerstone, the, the stone that is talked about, is Christ. We can talk about the stone that was rejected later on in Acts chapter 4, as we'll see. It's Jesus Christ. There's a constant theme throughout the scriptures that the rock, the stone upon which we stand, upon which we, we build our hope, our, you know, the, the rock of our salvation is Jesus Christ. We're not going to take time to go through all of that tonight. But what's interesting about this stone is Peter uses a term that really it's an oxymoron. Now I know some of you are going to be disappointed to find out that your pet rocks from the 70s were not really living. Okay, how many of you had pet rocks? Anybody have pet rocks? Anybody going to admit you had pet rocks? Nobody's going to admit they have pet rocks, okay? But that whole idea, we, we understand stones are not alive. They're dead. They're, they're inanimate. They have, they're not even dead because they never were alive. They're, there's no life to them. And yet Peter says this stone upon which we stand is living. It's alive. There is, a, there is substance to it. There is life to this. And Peter really likes that idea of living, doesn't he? I mean, think back through. He's talked about a living hope in chapter one. He's talked about the word is living. Now he's going to talk about this stone is alive. And so Peter is looking and saying, there is life that is found through the word. There is life that is found through Jesus Christ. And he says, "We, we build upon that. So this stone is alive. Why? Because this stone rose again. It did not stay. He did not stay in the grave. Our hope Our living hope is built upon the resurrection. Our hope upon Jesus Christ, it is there because he is the stone who rose again. He is alive. And so as we look at this, go a little bit further in the verse, it says, to whom coming as unto living stones, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You're gonna see these contrasts go through this passage. You're gonna see the the one side, the other side. You're gonna constantly see this. The idea of disallowed uh, by men is the idea of di- it was rejected. This living stone was rejected by men. Now the idea of disallowed has the idea of they examined it. They looked at it intently and they rejected it because they found that it had no value. Now think about that in relationship to the metaphor that Peter's drawing here. The rock is Jesus Christ. There were those who evaluated Jesus. There are still those who evaluate Jesus and they find that he has no value to their life. That they they reject him because he has nothing to offer them or they feel that he has nothing to offer him. But this rejection is part of what? It's part of God's plan. Look how he unfolds it. He says, but chosen, this stone, this living stone, Jesus Christ was chosen of God and is precious or is honored by him. So this is, not, this is not a mistake that, that Jesus Christ was rejected. God understood that he would be rejected. It was prophesied that this stone would be rejected. We'll see that in a few moments out of Psalm 118. So we have, we have this stone, um, the, the base, the stone of Jesus Christ. It is the foundation upon which we are established, upon which this building that, that God is going to build is established. He is the the base the foundation, the rock of our faith. And it is a living faith. We don't we don't serve we are the only religion, we're the only faith group in the world that serves a risen savior that is alive. It is not a, our God is not dead. Our God is not still in a tomb. Our God is not just an image. Our God is alive. And so that is the the living rock upon which we base our faith upon. So then we go to the building in verse 5. As you go to verse 5, Peter says, You also, as lively stones, are built upon a spiritual house. So he, he, he looks and he says, Because we came to this living stone, Jesus Christ, through our faith in this resurrected Christ, because we've entered into this relationship with him, we partake in the divine nature of God. We become more and more like him. Flip over a couple of pages of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter one, verse three. One page, probably in most of your Bibles. According to the divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. We partake in the divineness, the divine nature of God. So in the fact that our God is alive, that we are now living and we will live because we are not going to experience that death of eternal separation, but now we will be alive. We are partakers with him. We, we partake in his strength and his security and his surety. When anyone comes to Christ, what he's saying here is a new stone is added to God's spiritual house. So we look at it and say, okay, when someone gets saved, they are being built and added onto a spiritual house that is being established. We are being built. We are the stones. You and I, we are called living stones. We are lively stones. Just like Jesus Christ is the living stone, we partake in his life. Now, we are the stones that are going to be part of this building. It's not a physical stone. We don't transform into this, you know, you're marble, I'm granite. We all get put together and we become—that's not the idea. He's using this picture to say as phys- we're not physical stones. He's using that metaphor, but we are hewn out. We are stones which are unique, which are different. That's that word lithos, and they're used for a purpose, Those stones are going to be put together. They're going to be uh, cut and carved and shaped to be part of something. We're not cookie cutters. And and I think this goes two different ways to be thinking about it as we, we look at it. We all have different gifts. We all have different abilities to be used that God, that the spirit has gifted us and enabled for what purpose? For the body, for the church, for the building that God is building up. And so as he carves us, as he shapes us to put us into place, he's using our gifts and our abilities and our talents to be able to be used in local church service for the body of Christ and for the building to be built up. Now the building, remember again, it's not going to be a physical. It's not, it's not physical stones. It's to build up you and I. That's, that's what your gifts and talents and abilities are going to be used for. To encourage one another, to exalt one another, to lift each other up and to strengthen the body of believers. And then, you know, the other idea I was thinking of too is, you know, sometimes we, we get the idea that we have all the answers and if, nobody, if everybody doesn't see everything my way, obviously they're not going to heaven. But the stones are, the stones are different. They're unique. For those who, we may have people even in here who don't agree on all the topics, but guess what? We still agree on the gospel. We still agree on Jesus Christ. And so there, there will be some differences that happen at times. That's, that's part of our, our ability as priesthood of believers. We'll talk about that in a few moments uh, to, to be able to do that. But these stones, what are they doing? What does he say? As lively stones are being built up into a spiritual house. So these hewn stones, you and I, as we've come to Christ. God is now shaping us. God is working in us. God is directing as the master architect, the master builder, and he is shaping us and making us to be more and more beneficial for this body, for whatever body we become part of the local church. It's it's a local church perspective that that is being talked about. It's, It's not an uncommon thought. Or term to be used to talk about us as stones. Uh, the the his, historians talk about the king of Sparta, and he would always brag about the walls of Sparta. The walls of Sparta will never fall. The walls of Sparta are great. And one of one of his adversaries, um, people came in and was looking around Sparta, and he's looking around. He's like, "Where are these great walls? Where are these great walls you keep bragging about?" And he said, "He said these be the walls of Sparta." He points to his citizens, and then he points to his military. He says, every man is a brick. Everyone that is, that is robed in his armor and is ready to fight. And we know historically that the Spartans were, they were vicious, they were strong, they were a great entity, but they all understood the importance that each one stood when they stood side by side, the strength that they had together. As we are stones together, being built up together, into this body, we have to strengthen each other. We have to stand firm with each other and understand our responsibility for me not to do things, for me to set aside and say, I'm just not, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to leave that to other people. That causes others to have to to step up. And then that could potentially cause burnout for somebody or could cause somebody to be frustrated. We all have abilities We all are being shaped by God through whatever situations, whatever we are facing, to be used by God for the building up of this this building. Now, this building, as we talk about, it's being built into a spiritual house. It's a spiritual house. The stones are being fit together into this building. And as he shapes them, the stones do not build themselves. I mean, it would be, we'd all be pretty amazed if we could watch and like, you know, see the stones start walking across and start shaping and putting themselves in place. They are being put together by a builder. We know that that builder is God. We'll talk about that in a second. But doesn't it ring true with Matthew 16? When Jesus says, I will build my church. And he says, I will continue to build my church. God is not done yet. God still desires to add stones to this building. God still desires to add stones to our community of believers here. And we have a part to, to, take, uh, to, to play in that. We have a responsibility to be working and to be living life so that we exemplify the glory of our great builder, of our great maker. As we look at it, we are corporately being built up. This is a really interesting passage because we can look sometimes in our spirituality and just say, well, it's just about me. It's not really, I'm just gonna do my individual thing. But look at, look at how he starts it. He said, verse five, you also, the, the you there is you plural, are being built up into a spiritual singular house. He's looking and saying, this is not you by yourself or me by myself. It is, he's saying, it is us being built up into this, to our church, to our body, that God has uniquely placed us in and he is carving us and shaping us to minister to one another and to minister to our community through this community. And so, so Christ looks and says, this is important. We tend to individualize that and we don't want to talk about the, the community emphasis. We like that as Americans. We like our individual. We don't want to have to worry about the community. I used to hate the word community. It's just, because everybody was a community organizer and everybody wanted to, it takes a community to raise. And I just got to the point where I didn't want to even talk about that word, but it's, it's a biblical concept that we are a community of believers working together to, to, to serve our great God. So sure, we're built individually. And as we're strengthened individually in our lives, we have that personal dynamic, but we, as we are strengthened, the community grows. And if I, if I start to shirk my personal growth, if I start to step aside from my personal responsibilities to Jesus Christ, the community suffers. And that's where Peter is driving at. He's like, you are being built up by God for this this body. You're being built up into a spiritual house. It is not a physical house. This is a spiritual one. God is more concerned with the building of people than with the building of properties or programs. We like programs, we like buildings. That is a very, very American mindset. We, We understand, we need them to a degree. And yet God is more concerned with us making disciples. God is more concerned with us individually helping others to grow and building each other up. That's what God is in the business of of growing people and growing individuals so that as we grow, others grow and become more like, more like Christ. This house is to be animated. It's, it's, it's life comes from the indwelling of the spirit. It is a spiritual house. It is not a fleshly house. It is not one that we can just build with hands and call it a day. It is a spiritual, spirit-filled, spirit-indwelt house. Which goes back to our responsibilities as believers, as we are indwelt with the Spirit, as we are living with the Spirit, as we are living by the Spirit, as we are walking in the Spirit, as we are doing our part with God and the Spirit is using us and enabling us, the the body grows. Too many times, I think, in our in our society as a whole, We've gotten away from the concept that the Spirit is to drive our ministry, that the, the Holy Spirit is to be guiding and directing us. And we do things very pragmatically because it works. But we need to look and say, wait, we need to be led and directed by the Spirit in every single thing we're doing. That is how we as a body are being built up. It's important for us to understand this because the church is not physical. So even if the church is banned, okay, okay, we don't like to think about that. We're in America. We have the freedom of religion, right? We understand that. But we also all very clearly understand that it could be right around the corner that this could be considered illegal. That this could not, you know, we could have people standing out there and saying you can't enter. Even if that were to happen, the church has not been banned. That's what God is saying. It's not it's not a physical building. It's not an edifice. We are the church. And therefore, as we are being built up and we build up one another, even if the worst were to happen in America where we could not physically meet like this, in this building, we would still be able to find a place to meet. We wouldn't have to meet right here. And we would still be the church because it's a spiritual building that God is building up, not a physical building. So as we grow together, not just as individuals, but as living stones joined together with others, to become an integral part in God's building of a spiritual house. I know that's like one of those sentences that you look and go, it makes no sense. But when you, when you take it apart, what are, we do, what are we here for? We are here to be grown by God as individuals and corporately together as a body. Why? Because as we are being grown and as we are being built up, we're strengthening this spiritual house. That's what we're here for. That's what Peter is looking and saying, this is what happened when you came to him. You may not have realized that, but when you came to Christ, you became part of this building. Now, when you come to join Faith Baptist Church, now you become part of this specific local entity that we have. And we work together for a common goal of glorifying our great God and evangelizing others, and looking to bring others and disciple them to become more like Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse five. He, t- he, he takes, he says, not only are we this building, but look what we are. We've become this spiritual house for a holy priesthood. He's looking and saying, we, we now see not just the individual again, the priesthood here is plural. He says, we've built this spiritual house. Why? <coughs> Excuse me so that the priesthood which again now is you and I that we may minister the priesthood here is functional it's not theoretical it's not just like oh really cool i get to i get to call myself a priest no he's looking and saying you have been saved for a purpose to be part of this priesthood to minister in this new house this new spiritual temple that we might be offering praises and sacrifices To him, by virtue of the cross and by virtue of the resurrection, we are made holy, and now we are granted access to God. Remember Old Testament theology. You and I were not—we definitely weren't—because we're all we're all goyim. We're all the we're all the Gentiles. We're the other people. You know, most of us here were not even allowed any access or, or very distant access. But even if even if you were a Jewish male. You only got so close to the, to the access coming face to, or, you know, to, to God. You can only get so far in the temple. And even the priest could only get so far. And then the high priest would be allowed that, that closest uh, entrance into the Holy of Holies. But now Peter looks and says, in this New Testament era, you and I are part of the priesthood. We have access to our great God. We have the ability to go to him in prayer. I don't need a mediator for there's one mediator between God and man. That's Christ Jesus. I can now go to to God in prayer. I can now go to God and offer my praises and offer my sacrifices. I can sing directly to him. I can do all of that. I don't have to have that intermediate aspect. We now are given that. And so this defines what he's doing is defining the vocation of the church. He's looking and saying this spiritual house We've built it up together for this holy priesthood to be ministering, to be holy, to be entering in and to be giving praise and adoration to our great God, to be offering the sacrifices to our great God. And so he looks and he says, this is a really amazing thing. When you came to him, this is what happened to you. Now for these exiles, this is gonna, this is gonna ring really important to them. They're looking and feeling lost, like they have nothing to offer. Like they're, they're, they're just floundering through these, these chaotic times. But he's saying, let me give you some perspective. Let me give you some direction. Even though you're not a physical building, you are a spiritual one, and you can minister and serve our great God. We talk about the priesthood of believers. As Baptists, that is one of our distinctives. We hold to very clearly that you and I are seen our priests in the sense of we can have access to God, we can go before him and he he communicates with us through his word, we can communicate to him through prayer, we can interpret the scriptures on our own. And this is one of the passages where it talks about that we can we can look and say those who are saved have that access, have that ability to be able to enter in. And so we have this building there's also blueprints. With any building project, there's always blueprints. And Peter is going to use the Old Testament as his blueprint to say, hey, this, this is nothing new. God has talked about this coming for a while. He uses three different passages in the, in this, the, the next three verses. He's going to refer to Isaiah chapter 28. He's going to refer to Psalm 118. And then he's going to refer to uh, to Isaiah chapter 8 again. And as we, we look at those, we just want to keep the context, but also be remembering. To these believers, Peter just doesn't randomly say, oh, let's just pick out a couple verses out of the Old Testament on stones, because we're going to see the stone come up again. We're going to see the cornerstone, the rejected stone. We're going we're to see this. He just doesn't randomly pick out. There's, there's some intention here for these believers who are hurting and struggling and going through a different time. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I, I don't like Bob Ross, but everybody knows when you see Bob Ross, it's all about painting. I, I read, a, read an article It was talking about a painter who, he said that he really, he really, every time he would paint, and this is an older painter, he put on his easel a ruby, a sapphire, and an emerald. And he would always paint. And he said the reason that he would do that, because he said when I would paint and paint and paint, I would get lost in all the myriads of colors. And it was really important for me to be able to come back to what the true reference of what real red looks like and what real green looks like and what real blue looks like. He said, "Help me to keep the right perspective." The same is true with this, with these passages. Peter is going to help us to have this true frame of reference. He's going to look at these Old Testament passages, but he's going to keep it in true reference to Jesus Christ. He talks about it in verse six. He says, "Behold, uh, wherefore it's contained in the scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion." a chief cornerstone elect, precious. And he that believes on him shall not be confounded. So he's referring to Isaiah 28. This is a time when the northern kingdom, Ephraim, uh, or Israel, was being challenged by Isaiah, saying your disobedience, your unbelief, it's going to, to bring you into exile. But those who trust in the Lord, you're not going to be facing judgment. For for the, the believers who are now exiled at this time, this is, this is a reminder saying, hey, stay faithful, trust in the Lord. Even though you're in the midst of all these difficulties, stay faithful, stay faithful to the Lord. And what does he call Jesus Christ here? He says, I in Zion a chief cornerstone. He calls it the cornerstone, the most important reference point for the building. It is the first stone laid. It is the, the stone that's going to set all of the angles. It's going to set all the footings, all the foundations, and it's going to create all the parameters and all of the guides. What a great picture for us! So in our life, we need to be anchoring ourselves to that cornerstone. It's interesting. The temple cornerstone, massive, thirty nine feet four inches long, seven foot ten inches wide, forty three inches tall, and it weighs eighty tons. That's the cornerstone, and that's not even the biggest stone in the temple of, of what is still remaining from the second temple period. It's, it's just massive when you think about it. But why was it so important? Because it set every other direction. It set everything in place. And so God looks and says, I've set in Zion this chief cornerstone, this one Jesus Christ. He's going to set the angles. He's going to set the parameters. He's going to give us the guidelines that are there. And chaos in life, we need to be doing that, just like these exiles who are there. Peter just doesn't, again, randomly choose it out. He says, hey, attach yourself. The cornerstone's important. Stay to God for guidance, to Christ, for surety, and so as we go through these chaotic times, our foundation, our cornerstone is the one who sets our guidelines, who sets our angles, who sets our trajectory, sets everything else based upon Jesus Christ. Then he goes into verse seven and he quotes another passage. The stone with the, which the builders disallowed or rejected, the same is made the head cornerstone. This is coming from Psalm 118 and verse 24. In the Psalm here, it's a picture of the king returning. If you remember the psalm, it's a very familiar psalm if you read through it. The idea is that the king is returning and there's, there's praise and there's some adulation and yet the people all around, the nations around are rejecting him. The nations around are like the bees who are buzzing. They're like those who are coming against him and there's this pushing against and so the king feels very, very, very much struggling and oppressed from all the nations around. And so this passage then has in the, in the middle of it this, this reference of the, the stone that is rejected. And Peter and Jesus both use it. In fact, go with me to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read from, from Matthew. I'm just going to remind you of Matthew chapter uh, 21. You know the parable. The, in Matthew chapter 21, the parable here is the one where uh, the tenant farmers, they're there, and the, the owner of the field send send uh, up an individual, and they do harm to the individual, and they send another one, and they send another one. Eventually, they send the son. And what happens to the son? They kill the son, remember? They, they, they reject the son completely. And in, in the passage there, Jesus is then going to quote this passage. He says to, to the Pharisees, he, uh, he will miserably destroy the wicked, Amen. And will let out his vineyard unto the other husbandmen, which shall render him uh, the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builder rejected, the same has become the head of the corner, the cornerstone, this chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And the chief priests and Pharisees, two verses later, they perceived that Jesus was one talking of them who rejected Christ, and that he was, re, was talking of himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, if you go to Acts 4, which you're, you're there, I'll jump and catch with you. Peter and John are there, and they're, they've healed this individual, and then they're being challenged by their religious leaders and saying, by what authority, what right do you have to be doing this? And they, they looked at him, and they said, verse 8, uh, then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said, you rulers, people, the elders of Israel— If we this day be examined of good deeds done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, so they're the ones who've rejected him, they're the ones who've crucified him, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head's cornerstone. And he's referencing again, Psalm 118. He's looking and saying, Peter looks and says, the, the one you've rejected, Jesus Christ, he's the one who is this chief cornerstone. He is the one who is here that is solid that we are going to to, to have here. And he calls it the rejected stone in the passage. Verse 7 the rejected stone, much has been made about, okay, is it the head of the corner? Is it the, the keystone or is it a cornerstone? I personally believe it's still the, the concept of the cornerstone because the next verse they're going to talk about stumbling. I don't know if any of you have ever stumbled over a keystone, which is at the top of an arch. If you do, let me know how you did it. But uh, I, it just seems to be that perspective of something that is there that, that is there. Uh, when the Jews rejected Christ and had him crucified, they think they won a victory but they didn't. It was part of God's plan. He looks and says, um, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as the head of the cornerstone. And we're going to see in a couple verses here that this is the one who was chosen by God. That this was part of God's plan. Uh, Peter refers to it in Acts 4. God knew what he was doing. This was all part of, of God's plan because evil will not triumph. Even when you're in exile, even when you feel rejected, even when it feels like we've lost, in the end, we have not. God is in control. And Peter is reminding those individuals, hey, Jesus Christ was rejected. And yet it was all part of God's plan because God will have the final victory. That is our hope, that one day we will be vindicated, that one day we will enter into heaven and we hold fast. And that's what he's laid out for a chapter and a half already for us. And so this stone becomes this rock of stumbling for some. It's a rock of offense. Israel was being warned to fear and trust the Lord rather than other nations in Isaiah chapter eight here, the verse that he's quoting out of in, in verse eight. And the cornerstone has caused many to stumble. Has it not? Has Jesus Christ not caused many people to stumble, to really face, uh, I can't, I, and they reject that. Now, what happens in verse 8, look in verse 8. It's a, it's, it's a sticky wicket, okay? It, it, yeah, if I could skip it, I would, but that's not my place. We need to work through even the hard passages of Scripture. Um, and to a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Okay, so were these individuals appointed by God to reject Jesus Christ? were they predestined to not even have a choice, but they had to reject, they had to reject Christ. That's, that's part of the theological battle that comes here. Let's talk about it for a second. Help us understand it. Let's, let's look at the rest of these verses. We've just looked at the, the historical, the, the quotes that he made. But look at what it says in verse 6. It says, he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Okay, again, then in verse seven, unto you therefore which believes he is precious. So there is belief that is occurring here. But then in the second half of verse seven, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, those who are not following, even to them which stumble being disobedient, verse eight. So you have this contrast that is set up by Peter very clearly laid out. Those who are obeying, those who are following, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, the stone, the cornerstone, the chief stone, and then those who are not obeying the word, the gospel, those who are rejecting the stone. So this contrast here, those who believe on Christ will not be put to shame, it says, but rather, verse 7, they will be uh, the, the idea of unto them which believe he is precious, the idea is they will be honored. Peter is once again speaking about this future vindication that one day we will be vindicated at the day of judgment. Why? Because, not because of anything we've done, but because of our belief in the stone, our belief in Jesus Christ, our belief in what Christ has done for us. But those who reject the stone... Those who are disobedient to the gospel, the word that it's talked about there uh, in verse number, verse number eight, even to them that stumble at the word being disobedient, those who refuse God's word, they're destined to stumble over Christ. As they reject God's word, as they reject the gospel, what is, what's going to happen to them? They're going to stumble over Christ. They're going to battle with who Christ is. And there, there is going to be this, this aspect What's the opposite of future vindication? Future what? There's there's future judgment, isn't there? It's future punishment. It's very clear. You take the contrast as it lays out here. The punishment, the process of judgment is being appointed unto these individuals. Those who reject, those who push away the stone, those who disobey the word of God, what is appointed unto them? not the future vindication, but the future punishment. No person, it's, an, it's not the person that is predestined here, but it's the process and the punishment of all who reject Christ. That is what's being appointed at the end of verse 8. So as Peter looks and says, we're drawing a contrast. There are those who believe, there are those who have rejected. And for those of you who believe there is this future vindication that one day we will enter into the beautiful gates of heaven and that all of our hope and all of our misery that we've faced, we face, we will be set right. We will have, be part of that final victory. For all of you who have refused and you have rejected Jesus Christ, he looks and he says, there is an appointment for you. It is punishment. It is the wrath of God there will be no final vindication. You have rejected the one who is able to save you. So don't get lost in all, of the, all of the, the extra theology there. Look at the contrast of what is happening. And Peter's just, he's drawing it out to them saying, you're not this anymore. You've put your faith in the stone, the rock, the chief cornerstone. And despite all the chaos, despite despite all the strugglings that you are facing and all the difficulties, even with the persecution one day, our hope is in Jesus Christ. And we will be vindicated and we will be able to enter into that. And then he, he, he moves further with this contrast. Look at verse number nine again. You're gonna see, but you, he comes back to us. Verse eight, he's talking about those who have rejected those who are stumbling over Christ. And he's gonna talk about the building tenants to a degree, even though we're the building. I just, you know, it it talks more specifically about us right now. As this building, as believers, what does he say? He continues to contrast the living stone to the rejecters of the stone. And he shows us how our identity as a church, as a body of believers, as a building being built up together, as the spiritual house of God, What is our identity? He says, we are a chosen generation, verse number nine. You are are a chosen generation. He references, Deuteronomy 7 talks about Israel being the chosen people of God. But now he's going to use this same terminology to us. He's gonna say, we as believers are God's chosen people. We have not replaced Israel. We know that during this time period, during the church age, We are the entity, the program through which God is working. Israel is on a parenthetical timeout. They're going to come back into play when we get to end times. But right now, we are God's chosen people. He says, that's a unique and special place to be. It's now applied to us. We haven't replaced them. We are chosen to be his people. Not just these nebulous whoever's out there. We are specifically special to God. He goes on and he says, we are a royal priesthood. This priesthood serves the king. It has a kingly line. We serve this and we partake in this royal dynamic that we are now the priesthood of the great king. That as we are here and we enter into this building, this spiritual building that God is building up, all of us together, we get to serve each other and we get to serve our great king. That's what God is looking and saying, when we got saved, that's, why, that's part of why we got saved. To serve him, to serve each other. In the Old Testament, the priesthood was to mirror to the nations the glory of God so that the nations would see that no God rivals the Lord our God. Now think about that statement in light of our lives. We are to mirror our great God, the glory of our great God, so that others look at us, they understand, and they begin to believe nothing, no one, no other God, no other deity compares to our great God. We're the royal priesthood, serving in God's spiritual house, serving God's people, we are to be doing that. We are appointed as a royal priesthood. And he goes on and he says, we are a holy nation. God has set apart the church for his use. And the individual believers, we have a valuable contribution to make to this church. You may say, I have nothing to offer. That is not theologically true. You have something to offer. Every single one of us spiritually does and when we neglect that, it harms the body. He goes on, he says, we're a peculiar people. Now, this, this verse has often been, I think, misaligned, misappropriated. It's not the idea of we're, we're supposed to just be odd fellows, you know, odd people who are just out there. Yes, there is a difference. There ought to be a difference between how we live and how the world lives. I understand that. The wording here for peculiar is literally we are a people for his possession. It is not the idea of, well, you need to dress, dress like a dork because that's what Jesus Christ demanded. You know, that, that was my childhood. That, that's not what it's saying. It's not supposed to be we're just odd. No, we are, the idea here is we are his unique, special possession. So as we look at it, we belong to him. He owns us, and therefore we have value because we are a possession of his. We are not appointed as a royal priesthood. Sorry, we'll we'll fill that one in here in a second. Think about this. How much would you pay for that door? Old, dilapidated. Would you pay $6,300 for it? Nope, I wouldn't. Now, some of you might because that was Paul McCartney's door. Okay, and it went for $6,300. Who's Paul McCartney? About? No, I'm kidding. Um, it went for that. This shirt, would you pay $22,500 for it? If you're a crazy Elvis fan, you might, but that's what it went for. Would you pay for this chair $395,000 $395, just because J.K. Rowling sat on it while she wrote all her Harry Potter books? Someone did. Why why are all of these items valuable? It's because of who owned it. And people have ascribed worth to those items. We are owned by the God of the universe. We have value, he possesses us. We are his peculiar, his special possession. And he is looking and saying, because we are the royal priesthood, because we are his possession, he wants us and desires us to serve him. We are appointed as a holy nation, a holy priesthood. We are now the people of God. We as Gentiles, we did not deserve this inclusion. We did not deserve to be part of God's people. But now what have we done? Verse 10, we have obtained mercy. I have received God's mercy, and now I can rejoice in the inclusion into God's people. We are granted value, and we have obtained mercy because of God, because of his salvation, because the stone has found us to be precious and valuable. God's mercy gives us an identity. And because of that, we see these builders in this passage— Now, we're not going to take time. The passage throughout, you you will understand as you read through it, there's two builders. There's those builders who continue to reject. It's the world. They rejected God. They rejected the chief cornerstone. But there was another builder in this passage. The builder that's in the passage that we want to pay attention to is the second builder. It's God. Remember, he has been building us up. You are being built into a spiritual house. And what does he do? And in these verses, we've skipped over two, two main phrases as we've went through tonight. There's two phrases that I, and there's a reason, because they're both purpose clauses. They're both purpose statements. And Peter is saying, all of this is driving toward two purposes. He says, very first in verse five, he says, you have become this spiritual house, this holy priesthood. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He says, our first purpose is this body together as this holy nation, as this royal and holy priesthood, as this group of individuals who is being built up together for each other and for God. What are we to be doing? We are there to offer spiritual sacrifices. And then verse 10, that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his glory or his marvelous light. Our sacrifices, verse 5, we can go through and look at the, uh, the sacrifices of the New Testament. We know that ourselves, our body, present your bodies as a holy sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable form of worship to him. Hebrews 13, he talks about acceptable sacrifices, our praise to God when we come here together. Verse 16, it talks about our good works in our life is very much our sacrifice to God. Philippians chapter 4 talks about an acceptable form of our sacrifice to him is our giving to God. He talks about all that, but don't even forget the context here. Remember up earlier in verses one and two, we're supposed to be putting off, laying aside malice and guile and hypocrisies. He's looking and saying, take off your malice and put on love. Remove your deceit, put on truth. He looks and says, put away the hypocrisies and be authentic. Take the envy and have joy over people's successes. Stop slandering, but encourage one another. All those things that can cause division in the body, We look and we say, we work on these because they're a sacrifice to our great God. And they're acceptable. There are sacrifices that are not acceptable. If there's ones that are acceptable, there are ones that are not. And as we look and we live our lives, we look and we seek to be acceptable to God. Our lives are to be a declaration of God's grace. Putting that out there, our lives living so that as others see us, they see us as that holy priesthood that holy spiritual building being built up together. And then he goes on in verse 10, and he says that we, uh, that, uh, verse nine, it should be not verse 10, sorry. Uh, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you show forth. Why, why are we all those things? Why do we have value to God? Why are we his peculiar possession? Why are we all of this? That we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness, that we are to proclaim his excellencies. Peter places a high priority on the verbal declaration. That's what he's talking about here, that we tell others, that we proclaim the greatness, the glorious grace, the wonderful mercy which we have obtained, that we talk about the way that God is building us up, the way that God has chosen us and that God is using us. We talk about that. We lift him up. We exalt him. Our grand purpose, though, is often thwarted by our silence, maybe even our pride. I don't want people to reject me. I don't want to be rejected. What does the passage call our savior? The rejected stone. And if they're going to reject him, they're going to reject us. And let's 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 be honest those people who got it wrong about Jesus Christ in the first place, why am I so worried about what they think about me? They got, they got the most fundamental thing wrong. I need to declare to them. I need to let them know the praises, the excellency of our great God. We are to make much of the one who saved us, not simply to point out error, The passage doesn't say take them to task over all their sinfulness and all their, yes, we need to point that out. But we have a responsibility to be exalting God, to be exalting and lifting up our great God, to be talking about how wonderful our Savior is, to be talking about how wonderful our body, how refreshing our body of believers is to come to together on Sunday. When we go to work tomorrow, when we talk to somebody tomorrow saying, what'd you do? No, I just had the weekend. No, I had a great day. I had the opportunity to worship and be refreshed with the body of believers that God has placed me in. It's a joy to be able to praise and give glory to my great God who saved me. We can do that. We can talk about that to our friends, to our neighbors. It's a new development going in across the street. God is doing a development here. He's building us up. Have you ever thought about the fact this this really struck me this week going through this passage? God has established this church right here all these years ago knowing full well that there's 700 homes coming in right there. We need to start preparing now for them. Praying, asking God to give us fruit from the new development, fruit from the neighborhood around us, from all of those in our neighborhoods. Do I pray for me to have the boldness to proclaim the great glories of God. Do we look and say, all these neighborhood, neighborhood night was great. It was wonderful. Loved it. Had a blast last week with everybody. But now we're praying for fruit. We're praying that there is response because I just don't want to run a carnival and know, know, be known as the guy who runs the carnival for the neighborhood. I want to be known in the neighborhood as the guy who gives them the gospel and sees them come to know Christ and sees them grow to be more like him. That's what we're being built up for. That's our grand purpose. That's what Peter's looking and saying, that's what we're here for, to be a royal and holy priesthood and exalt and praise the great name of God because we are God's building. We're a spiritual community to live for him and declare him to our community. How are we doing on that this week? Let's look for opportunities. Let's start praying for the development that's going in across the street. Let's start praying for our communities. Let's not just do that, but let's now work at the verbal praise of our great God to start declaring him. You can do it. I know you can do it because God has said you need to do it. And if God has said you need to do it, he's saying, I will enable you, I will help you to do it. We can do it. Let's go out this week and intentionally look for an opportunity to declare the wonder, the majesty, the splendor, the mercy, the grace of our great God. And let God begin to do work in the hearts of the people that we rub shoulders with, that we have contact with, with our community.